When you think of famous Bible stories, what comes to mind? Maybe Noah's Ark, that's a classic, all the animals marching two by two up the ramp into the ark. Maybe Moses leading the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt through the Red Sea, God parting the waters. Maybe Daniel in the lion's den. In 1995, a guy named Richard Letterer compiled what kids told him about famous Bible stories. So he interviewed the kids. He says, tell me about these famous Bible stories. That was pretty good. So, kids said, in the first book of the Bible, Guinnesses, God got tired of creating the world, so he took the Sabbath off. Adam and Eve were created from an apple tree. Interesting. Noah's wife was called Joan of Arc. This is my favorite. Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. Wow, Lot's wife, something else. Kids told them that Moses led the Hebrews to the Red Sea where they made unleavened bread, which is bread made without any ingredients. It's amazing. Uh, then the kids told them the Egyptians were all drowned in the desert. That's an amazing feat. Afterwards, Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Amendments. <laughs> The first commandment was when Eve told Adam to eat the apple. But the fifth commandment is to humor thy mother and father. And finally, Moses died before he ever reached Canada. I'm not sure he was aiming for Canada, but it's all right. Now, what's happened over time with all these kids' Bible stories is we've kind of shoved them into the Sunday school area. We don't really think they have that much relevance to our lives as adults. And that is a tragedy. And it couldn't be further from the truth. So over the next five Sundays, we're going to unpack one of the most famous Bible stories, David and Goliath. Now, most times when this is preached, you hear one sermon on David and Goliath. You hear about the big climactic moment, but you don't hear about what led up to that moment. You don't hear about all of God's plans and His will and His purposes being worked out on that day. So I've entitled this five-part series, Saul, David, and Goliath, the Three Amigos. So we're going to begin today in 1 Samuel chapter 15. If you have your print Bibles, I encourage you to open it up to 1 Samuel 15. And uh, we're going to read the first three verses. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Wow, that seems unbelievably harsh. Why in the world would God give Saul such an extreme command? He's essentially saying, go wipe out the Amalekites. Go, go wipe out a people group. 
That seems to be the opposite of everything we know about God. God is loving. God is gracious. God is merciful. So what in the world is going on in this passage? Well, it turns out that we need a whole lot of background information to understand properly what's happening when God says to Saul, go wipe out the Amalekites. We begin in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. God calls a man named Abram to be the father of many nations, but most specifically, the Hebrew people, the Israelite nation. God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, a special sign of God's calling. And in Genesis 15, God gives Abraham a vision of what was to come in the future. And Don's going to read that for us. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So that's a pretty amazing and important verse. So here's Abraham, way before God has even formed a nation from him. He's in the land of Canaan. God says, here's what's going to happen over the next 400 years. Your descendants are going to go to Egypt. They're going to grow, expand to be a, a group of two million people. They're going to become a great nation. They're going to be enslaved, but I'm going to free them from that. And that's going to take over 400 years. So God is simultaneously forming a nation, but he also says in the last part of that verse, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The Amorites were one of the people groups living in the land of Canaan. What today we kind of consider northern Egypt all the way up to Lebanon and Syria. And God is judging those people groups. But He is giving them a ton of grace. He's giving them over 400 years to repent of their evil, wicked ways. That's a lot of chances. Over 400 plus years. Now the next logical question was, so what are these people groups? The Amorites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites. What are all these people doing that is so offensive, that is so wicked and evil? Well, that's spelled for, out for us in Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1-4. through 4. Again, Don's going to read for us. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. It says over and over in the first half of the Bible that God was creating a people group to be different than all the nations around them. And it says that over and over again. And he says, they are acting certain ways in Egypt. They're acting certain ways in the land of Canaan. You have to do the opposite. You're special. You're holy. You're my representatives. So what were they doing? Well, it goes on 
that chapter has a huge amount of verses uh, about every kind of incestuous sexual relationship you could have. Uh, It is horrific to read, (laughs) and it goes on and on and on. But suffice to say, it bans having sex with any of your close relatives of any variety. Then it kind of goes on and says, a man should never have an affair with his brother's wife or his neighbor's wife. So it's kind of hitting all those different things. And then finally, worst of all, it says, you are never to practice child sacrifice to the god Molech. So these nations, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, they were all regularly carrying on doing these kind of things. They were even sacrificing their own children to this god, Molech. That's why God's upset with them. That's why God is promising judgment. But God is unbelievably gracious and fair, and He gives them well over 400 years to begin to change their ways. Finally, in judgment, he sends Israel. And when he sends this new, brand new nation into the promised land, he tells them over and over again, you need to conquer the land. You're going to conquer these people. And that is the judgment that God sends on them. The other part of the background that we need to know is that when God was forming that nation, He brought them miraculously out from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. Then they're wandering in the desert. And God kind of takes them on a wandering path all the way to the promised land. And when they are freshly out of that whole experience of leaving Egypt, they're now in the desert, and they begin to wonder, okay, God, it's a little dry out here. We need some water. And God does a miracle and the water comes out of the rock and everyone's uh, thirst is quenched. And they're just this brand new little nation. And the Amalekites are this fearsome tribe of warriors. And they see this people group of almost 2 million people. They They see men, women, children. They've got their cattle. They've got their possessions. This is not an army. This is a traveling campsite. And they say basically, you know what? These people are vulnerable. We're going to go attack them. We're going to take all their possessions. We'll kill the men. We'll keep the women and children. And so the Amalekites attack. God intervenes and saves His people. But God is so offended by what these Amalekites done that He promises one day judgment will come on the Amalekites. John's going to read that for us. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. The Lord, then the Lord said to Moses, 
Write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner, generation to generation. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. All right, so all of that background information tells us why in 1 Samuel 15, God says to Saul, I want you to go and crush the Amalekites. This is the long promise judgment on a whole bunch of levels. And I felt that was really important to kind of go through and explain this morning because it lays out a really important principle. In our day and age, we hear the Bible constantly attacked. We hear everyone from outspoken atheists to skeptics commenting on the internet. Everyone seems to have a list of objections against the Bible. As we have seen in this passage, though, our immediate reflex should be to say, on the surface, the Bible seems to be what you're claiming. But in order to be sure, we need to look deeper and find out the whole context of this particular verse. And you'll find when people are upset and say, well, what about this verse? That should be your immediate reflex because oftentimes we need to understand the context. What's the background? What led up to God saying that thing or making that command? And that's a really important and helpful principle for all of us to understand. As you're reading the Bible, as you're growing in your faith, as you're doing your daily devotions, you will inevitably come across stuff that you go, what in the world was happening there? And that's a really good principle. Find out the bigger context. What's the backstory? All right. So we've got Saul. He's given his orders by God. Now we're going to pick up the story in verse 4. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Antelium, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with his sword. But Saul said, the, Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of the cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. 
Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. All right. So I've entitled my second point, Not Following Orders. Now, it starts off so well for King Saul. In a God-honoring move, he tells this other people group, the Kenites, he says, move away from the Amalekites, because we're about to attack them, and we don't want to hurt you. We don't want to have any of you caught up in this war. Again, the grace of God seen to a people group. But so Saul bravely leads his men in battle. They defeat the Amalekites. But then it all starts to go wrong. God said, it is the judgment I have promised for 400 plus years. I want you to destroy the king and the spoils of war as well. But Saul falls to the exact same temptation that human beings have been falling to ever since the beginning. The first few pages of the Bible, when Satan whispered to Eve, did God really say you shouldn't eat the apple? And that's what happens to Saul. It's essentially Satan saying, did God really say that? Did God really say destroy everything of the Amalekites? I mean, the 200,000 men of the army risked their lives in battle. Surely they deserve some hard-earned spoils of war. And the men are pressuring Saul, and Saul gives in. He doesn't carry out God's instructions. He spares the cattle, takes the plunder, even spares the king. And it takes actually three confrontations by the prophet Samuel before Saul finally comes clean. And he admits, well, Samuel, you're right. I didn't actually obey God because I was afraid of the men in the army. I thought about that this week as I was working on the sermon. I thought, what exactly was Saul scared of? What did he think might happen? Maybe he thought the men would whine and complain against destroying all the treasure and the cattle. Maybe the morale of the army would go down. Maybe that's what he was concerned about. Maybe he thought that his volunteer army would simply kind of leave and melt away back to their homes. Whatever he was worried about, the bottom line is that Saul was way more concerned about pleasing the men in the army, pleasing people as opposed to pleasing God. And every single one of us in this room faces that exact same temptation. Who do we care about pleasing more? Is it people or is it God? Are we, the people of Ocean View Community Church, going to build a reputation as courageous people who carefully discern what God wants us to do and then completely obey? You know, I think God's got some great stuff in our future. I don't think it's any mistake that God allowed us in such a dramatic way to begin to 
pay down our debt. I feel like God's got big things in store for us. And maybe God wants to send us on missions trips around the world. Maybe God wants us to help bring a refugee family to Canada. Whatever God wants us to do, once we have discerned it, will we have the courage to see it through? Maybe we'll get skeptics and detractors trying to say, what is that crazy church doing? What will we do? Will we back down and say, you know, you're right. There's lots of reasons not to do that. Or will we follow three? The primary question is, are we primarily concerned about pleasing God or pleasing people? Maybe at your work, maybe you have a lunchroom, maybe you gather with your fellow co-workers at lunchtime. People are maybe being crude, telling crude jokes, telling jokes that mock God. What do you do? Do you say something or do you keep silent? Who are we worried about? Pleasing God or pleasing people? What about a group of parents of teenagers chatting and several parents say, well, you know, kids will be kids. They want to experiment. I'm just going to let my son or daughter try marijuana. I'm just going to say it's okay to sleep around. I mean, what are you going to do? They're going to do it anyways, right? But what about you? You're there as a follower of Jesus. What do you say in that moment? We have the courage to say, I understand your heart is to love your kids, but have you thought through the implications of your choice? Are you aware that marijuana is often a gateway drug to harder drugs? Are you aware of the emotional bond that the sex act creates? Here's why I'm counseling my kids to take a different path. In those moments, they're incredibly difficult. But the question that God is asking us, the question that God asked Saul all those thousands of years ago is who are we concerned about pleasing? Is it God or is it people? Our final point covers one of the most memorable statements of prophecy ever given in the Bible. Let's hear Samuel's message from God to Saul and ultimately to us. Don's going to read that. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Then Saul said... Yeah, thank you, Don. That's great. Amazing line in there. To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Obedience is truly better than sacrifice. But then it says a very interesting thing. It says disobedience is like the sin of divination. It's like witchcraft. What in the world? Well, Bible scholar Joyce Baldwin makes this statement. She says, Samuel pronounces for all time the futility of attempting to rely on ritual sacrifice when what is required is obedience. No ceremony can make up for a rebellious attitude to God and his commandments because stubborn resistance 
to God puts our self-will in God's place. That's why it's as bad as divination, using evil spirits for guidance in the future, and tantamount to idolatry. For another God, self, has stolen God's place. And if you think about Saul in that moment, that's why God rejected him as king. Because Saul ultimately said, God, I know you're in charge, but really, it's about me. And God began, and he shoved God out of the way, and he put himself in the number one spot. And that's why God thinks that disobedience is such a serious thing. There was a man in the 1960s in the U.S., his name was John Kenneth Galbraith. He was a Harvard University prof of economics. He was at the university for almost 50 years. And he became pretty famous. And American presidents began to rely on him for his economic knowledge. And he was called up by four different presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Harry Truman, John F. Kennedy, and Lyndon B. Johnson. And he wrote a book about his life called A Life in Our Times. And he talked about the value of obedience. Specifically, Emily Gloria Wilson, his family's housekeeper. And he recalls this one incident. He says, It had been a wearying day, and I asked Emily to hold all the telephone calls while I had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone rang. President Lyndon Johnson was calling from the White House. He said, Get me Ken Galbraith. This is Lyndon Johnson. She said, He is sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up. I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not for you. <laughs> he finishes his nap, and then he says, when I called the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. He says, tell that woman I want her here in the White House. You know what? Samuel was right. Obedience is better than sacrifice. So ultimately, it's a pretty simple question. What areas of your life is God calling you to obey? Is there something specifically in your life you're saying, God, I'll obey you in every other part of my life, just not, not this part. I, I, I'll obey everything else, just, just stay away from this part of my life, God. Just leave me alone in that area. You see, Saul ultimately feared people more than God. And his disobedience cost him his kingdom and left him with a tarnished legacy. I think God is saying to me and to all of us, let's learn this lesson. May it be said of the people of Ocean View Community Church that we understood and believed what God wanted us to do and that ultimately, obedience is better than sacrifice. Amen? We're going to have our pastoral prayer.